Hello, you're listening to Botcast, and I'm your host, John Hendren. And in this episode, we're focusing on the third partita for solo violin, BWV 1006. You just heard a little bit of a clip uh, from that work. This is the Gavotte en Rondeau. Um, probably the second most famous slash favorite movement of this suite. Um, Bach uses the term partita, but what's interesting about looking at the three partitas for solo violin is he really uses that term loosely. It is meant to signify a, a suite of dances, and uh, he does that. But in each one, he's playing with the form. So in this one, we get uh, six movements. We've got this gavotte in rondeau, meaning uh, he's going to give us variations and then come back to a main theme, which is ripe fodder for violinists such as Enrico Onofri, who is the performer in this opening clip. Uh, when that theme comes back to do a little improvisation. And Mr. Onofri, I really appreciate the fact that he, he does a little bit of that. Um, then we have uh, we have a pair of menuets. We have a, a bore, we have a jig. Uh, previous to the gavotte, we have a lore or a lore. I'm not sure actually how you're supposed to pronounce it. Um, it would seem to me that you might call it lore, but I do not see the accent or the E. Uh, it is a dance that I'm not familiar with. Obviously, it has a French-sounding uh, uh, French name there. But then we open with the preludio. And this is, this is the weird part, right? I said Bach is playing with things. So we have preludes. That's not that weird. But a prelude is essentially not a dance like the others, right? So... An allemande would be maybe a nice first movement. Um, but what is this preludio? Uh, a little strange. The history of this piece uh, is also uh, interesting in that uh, Bach is borrowing from this material for other works. The, the music uh, we're about to hear with the opening of this partita, the preludio, uh, appears in two cantatas. In addition, it's been arranged for uh, another instrument. And I'm not sure why the Wikipedia says we don't know what instrument it is, but I think most everyone is uh, in under the belief that Bach uh, arranged it for uh, the lute. And when we think of Bach and lute, I always think of... Uh, his friend Weiss, who was um, a talented lutenist and composer, and I'm wondering if, if this had not been arranged for a friend. Um, so BWV 1006, big, big piece, because we've got lots of dances. Uh, we've got some that's got some extra parts to them. And then we open with this uh, kind of interesting opening. Uh, that doesn't fit the normal mold of a Baroque dance. And maybe it's not supposed to. Maybe it is just that special thing. Indeed, it is special. This is probably, uh, it's up there, and if I was going to have the top five most iconic pieces by Bach, this is the one uh, 
we we would likely all agree. Oh yeah, that's oh yeah, that's one we got we got to include this one. So I'm going to give you a sampling of different interpretations of this. And this happens, I got to say with every big piece of music, whether it's like Toccata and Fugue in D minor for for the organ or whether it's Vivaldi's Four Seasons or whether, you know, um trying to think of another, you know, uh, if we're going to Beethoven, like the Moonlight Sonata for piano, right? You get these big iconic pieces everybody loves and they're popular and they've, uh, you're going to get lots of people playing them and you're going to get some variations in the way they're performed. What I'm going to start with, however, because I know you're going to recognize the piece, not like I really have to introduce it to you. I'm going to let you listen to a piece of music not written by Bach, but it was, but it wasn't. This was uh, an interesting piece, probably around 1950 or 60s, I'm guessing. Uh, the name of the piece is For Ryan. Uh, it was composed by uh, a gentleman by the name of Lucas Foss. And it's an interesting story. He, had, he kind of had the sketch for this piece. Goes in the recording studio with Leonard Bernstein and... Uh, basically was was trying to figure out how to perform this piece with those musicians. So there's not a lot of recordings uh, of this piece, but as you hear, it is a take on the preludio from Bach's third partita for solo violin, but this edition is for orchestra, and it's a very, what I would call, contemporary modern take. What happens if we take this very... Uh, trusted, well-known piece of music and start to push it a little bit? What happens if it starts to fall apart? If it, um, if we push and pull at uh, not only the, the notes themselves, but the sounds and the... Um, it's, it's just an interesting piece. I think you'll get what I'm talking about when you hear it. It's sort of a degeneration of the piece. We're not going to listen to the whole thing, but it's enough at the beginning... So you can hear sort of the genesis of this idea. Like, let's take this very familiar thing and let's start to play with it. Uh, very interesting. It, it To me, it almost signals uh, something that we see in much later works, and it doesn't have to be music. It could be uh, a theme of a, of a movie. It could be uh, photographs. You know, we think of all the filters that people love to apply to photographs. Uh, we like to take missing parts. We like to throw away the color. We like to change the color. This is exactly what's happening in this piece of music. And because it was inspired by Bach, uh, I wanted to give it a listen.
So what's interesting in the in the next examples we're going to listen to of different violinists um, is is the approach. And again, I point out that because this is super popular, people are going to feel probably a, a little more artistic license in doing something uh, unique, different, what have you. Um, typically, this piece is looked at as sort of a fast, hard, intense tour de force. And I'm reminded of, um, you know, you hear a, a violinist perform a, a huge concerto. Um, and I'm thinking right now of the Beethoven concerto because there's a recording of this. Uh, the, the performer is Nigel Kennedy, and afterwards he uh, performs two... Um, two encores, and you know if you're if you're a violinist and you can whip off a movement or two from the sonatas and partitas for solo violin by Bach, it's perfect. You don't need to play with anybody else, and there's something that you've probably been playing your whole life, and you're probably going to know them inside and out, and so it becomes sort of this almost a showpiece. Some of the performances uh, here, and while I like that, I like it fast, I like it hard and loud, uh, there's some of these performances are going to be a little more introspective. They're going to slow things down a bit. They're going to start to play a little bit with the phrasing. And I, I call it the microphrasing. It's the grouping of the notes versus the big phrase. The, like big phrases and little phrases we talk about, but I'm talking about the little phrasing, um, which is interesting. And, and some of the interpretations are a little more subtle than others. So this is just kind of going by uh, a number of, of the recordings that I have, uh, highlighting some of the differences in interpretation of the opening movement of this, uh, the preludio. recording to me has a lot of energy it has a lot of um, vitality it's more on the uh, the hard fast and uh, intense uh, side of things um, very careful uh, uh, attention to dynamic contrast the fortes and the pianos this is Rachel Podger on Baroque Violin Uh, this is the Australian Elizabeth Walfish 
Uh, this uh, came out on the Hyperion label. Um, it's definitely different. She is all about the the bustling, the, the just sort of perpetual motion that this piece uh, seems to exemplify, and it's it's just so bustling, like almost it's getting away from her, um, which. Uh, at first might sound like a, a technical deficiency in, in her part of playing, but I, I think it's more of this giving this flavor. It's this rhetorical thing. It's like it just it just wants to get away from you, and she's not going to, to hold back. So uh, it's a different interpretation. Um, probably not my absolute favorite, but nevertheless, uh, it's kind of interesting, and I think it's worth, worth spending some time on. one down I really like this one this is Axel Wolf or Wolf um, it comes from an album of sort of uh, a mixture of, of Bach things um, the title of it is Bach French and English Suites and the, the main performer is Stefan Taminga uh, who is a South African um, recorder player and his uh, one of his uh, musicians accompanying him is Axel Wolf and they provide on that recording uh, this track of BWV-1006A in the catalog um, the Preludio with arranged for lute. What I like about this is I think they make a very uh, good case for this being a lute piece. When you have those that, that low bass note, it's not you're just not going across to hit it and then play all the other higher notes it just sort of resonates and lives down there um, I've also heard this piece performed on a, a different instrument known as the uh, the Lauten work uh, which is sort of one of these not a lot of examples of such an instrument but it's in theory it's this idea of uh, the sound of a lute but played on a keyboard like a harpsichord um, and we have some examples of Lauten works and uh, I think when we say we're not quite sure what instrument this is written for that it works on that instrument as well speaking of keyboards I'd like you to hear this uh, in the hands of a harpsichordist but this harpsichordist is uh, accompanied by a second harpsichordist I've sampled from this album before it's a favorite of mine uh, it is uh, the performers are Skip Senpei and Olivier Fortin.
can't say enough. I really love that recording. Uh, it's sort of like the encore to their album, uh, which is entitled Concerte e Preludia, and really a combination of music by Vivaldi and Bach. Um, sort of a range for two harpsichords. It's a really good album. It's it's was recorded some years ago, I believe, on the Astray label. Um, they they're no longer currently recording on that label, but uh, if you can find it, I highly recommend that that album, um, Dual Harpsichords. So I'm going to switch now to the second movement, and uh, to me, it's it's a hard one to interpret because of the way Bach's written it. Should you play it sort of more legato? Is it a sort of a soft dance? Or is it more of, is it not soft? Uh, I'm going to kind of give you some balance here with two different performances, which I think do a good job at sort of um, taking a strong approach to to this second movement um, in interesting ways that are atypical. And the first one is actually not on either of the instruments we've heard, uh, any of the instruments we've heard so far. It's going to be performed on the guitar, um, which, of course, is a brother or a cousin, if you will, of the lute. Uh, this is, and I believe I've played this album before or sampled from it. It's Paul Galbraith. Uh, he recorded, I believe this is on the, the um, Delos label? Something with a D. I, I, I unfortunately, to manage my music, I use iTunes. And most recently... I am losing all of the artwork, uh, not all of it, but enough to annoy. Uh, in iTunes, the artwork disappears, and I've tried rebuilding the cached library for that stuff. And so when I am absent-minded about a recording and want to know a detail, like the uh, record label, I am in the dark. However... This is a recording that came out in 1998. I still have that information for you. Uh, this came out on, uh, I believe it's, if I'm remembering correctly, it's a thin CD case. It looks like it's one CD, but they fit the two in there. Um, and if I remember correctly, he's not just playing on a guitar, but it's a specially made guitar uh, with more courses, and he also uses an amplification box for sound quality and um, uh, really have enjoyed these interpretations. Uh, and this one, um, he's really, well, you'll hear it. He He's able to extend, uh, he'll take a, a, a reasonably slow tempo, but he'll be able to extend it with um, ornamentation, which I think uh, is very tastefully done. <laughs>
So this is back to Enrico, uh, excuse me, Enrico Onofre, uh, Baroque violin. Um, Mr. Onofre, if, if you're not familiar with his name by itself, he was for many years was the leader of Il Giardino Armonico. Um, his release of the Boxnaz Partitas, he provides, I believe, three of them. Uh, he did not record all six yet. Um, this was a very hard album for me to find. It might be easier to find now, but when it first came out, it was uh, published in Japan. Uh, and me being a huge fan of Mr. Onofre, I, I had to have the recording despite the price. But uh, his interpretation here is to really, to for us to feel the strong and weak beats. And I think he does an excellent job at phrasing those. And, and making this not just sort of sag, it, it has it has a direction to it. It has a little bit of a momentum to it, without rushing it. Uh, and I just just like his solution. So I gave you another sample, the menuets from uh, Enrico Nofri. You probably, it's pretty obvious that it was the same violinist. This violinist we haven't really sampled, um, at least not in the last podcast, 54, or this one, 56. Amandine Bayer. Um, to me, this is a little more of a traditional approach. The tempo is not as uh, brisk as it was with Mr. Nofri, and there is much less emphasis on those, those beats. Um, I like this one too, but this is this is maybe a little more uh, what you're used to hearing. And I'm going to give you uh, a little bit more to listen to here with the, with the volume turned up. Um, this one I, th I don't think is nearly as popular as, as some of the other dances. Um, this is uh, a jig, and it's performed by Monica Huggett. Uh, this release came out oh, probably about 20 years ago, um, in the late 90s maybe. And it's on the Virgin Veritas label. It was a two-CD set. Um, I think it later came out as a discount. But when it came out, it was uh, somewhat eye-opening for me. I immediately thought, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't like it. And in some ways, it resembles to me, uh, especially listening to it in contrast to 
some of these other recordings, including the one preceding it by Amani Bayer, um, it's got this very sort of cl very closely mic'd uh, sound, uh, which makes me think, gosh, I'm, I'm in the same room. And when I say room, I don't mean concert hall, I mean like a small room with the performer. So it reminds me of, of the Gunnar Letzbor uh, album that we sampled in podcast number 54. some ways they are very similar they are emphasizing the groupings of notes in, in, in very similar ways however um, the rest of the aesthetics are night and day uh, tempo obviously just the energy level um, and you know what I, I keep saying this but I think both can really work now you may have a preference now you've heard a lot of different samples uh, in this uh in this edition of the podcast, I want you to hear, first of all, understand that um, that opening preludio, right? That, that, that piece, I'm not going to sing the rest of the notes. I told you before, I'm not a great singer. But that piece not only is, is popular now, but it must have been popular in box time because he he reuses it, and this this piece must have been love for him to take the time, and it survived. Right, that's that's the other thing. It's like all kinds of things could have happened we don't know about, but it actually survived in in a in a arranged version. And so, if you like this music, and I can't imagine you wouldn't, we've heard a, a gamut of the different musical ideas that are within. Uh, I wanted you to see some of the, the variation that's out there. Uh, in this edition, I think I focused only on historical performances this time. Uh, when we looked at 54, when we were looking at um, the second partita, you know, I, I mixed in some modern violinists in there as well. The, the choice that performers are making if I were to categorize them, it's do I do I emphasize the inner workings in contrast with what people sort of already know? And I'm sorry, but this piece is da -da 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 -da. there's all that energy, right? And if even if you hear it for a box arranger for full orchestra, it's energetic, it's perpetual, it's like Mm, it's just a good piece of music, and it's it's unique, right? It's, nobody's written pieces like that. Um, and so when we slow it down, and we could say the same thing about any of these movements, when we slow things down just a little bit, we sort of get a different appreciation for what's inside. And it, those are reasons why I think some of these other recordings, although maybe on the surface not quite as attractive because they're not as fast or loud or flashy, 
uh, I think they uh, offer us some really uh, delicious moments as well. So I hope uh, this was an informative podcast. BWV 1006, um, or multiple arrangements. And because I'm a sucker for that preludio, I'm going to give you one more sample. This is uh, an arrangement featuring the recorder, and it is from the ensemble known affectionately because of their alignment with Antonio Vivaldi, Red Priest. directory of your choice. Uh, the one that I use to find podcasts is the iTunes podcast directory. If you use a mobile app on your phone, if it's an iPhone, you have the podcast app from Apple, you can rate this podcast. And that just helps me out a little bit. If you are on an Android phone, they just came out with a podcasting app for Android. Uh, and so there's another opportunity for you there. Um, our website Bieberfan.org, B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N.org. You'll find more podcast episodes, music reviews, and show notes. I'm your host, John Hendren, and thank you for listening.